night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Michael S. Syringa, MD, psychiatrist and professor at Tulane University and author of They'll Never Be the Same, A Parent's Guide to PTSD in Youth. With school shootings on the verge of becoming the new normal, it can be difficult for parents to navigate the trauma their children may experience as a result of these tragedies. Michael S. Syringa MD, child and adolescent psychiatrist, and one of the most foremost authorities on post-traumatic stress disorder, or better known as PTSD, uses his 20 years of clinical practice and research to provide parents with a compassionate and accessible guide to explain the impact of this trauma on their children. Dr. Skaringa, professor and vice chair of research for psychiatry at Tulane University School of Medicine, is featured in Psychology Today, 16 Tips on Talking with Your Children After School Shootings. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, this is quite, obviously your book is uh, timely, and you're the expert for over 20 years on PTSD in children. Um, And I want to first start out just by you giving us a definition of what it is, and and then talking specifically uh, about PTSD and then relating it to the school shooting. So first of all, PTSD, sometimes people, lay people, confuse it with just stress. You, you know, you're stressed out. But that's not exactly what PTSD is. Am I correct? Right. The, the definition to understand kind of has two parts. One is, what is the event that came before you developed the symptoms, and then the second part is what are the actual symptoms. And the type of event, it's an important distinction to talk about. Like you said, there's, there's stress that people go through in everyday life, but the trauma that we're talking about that can lead to PTSD are life-threatening events. These are usually sudden, unexpected moments of sheer panic for your life. So... We're not used to thinking about these for children so much. We kind of think of combat veterans around this, but children actually experience a wide variety of traumas, things like child abuse, sexual abuse, witnessing domestic violence, uh, motor vehicle accidents, other kinds of injuries, burns, near drownings. For small children, it can be dog attacks because those are life-threatening, natural disasters, man-made disasters, and then, of course, things like school shootings. And One of the things, doctor, that, okay, so that what precipitates the PTSD is something as you just, you know, life-threatening is what you're saying. Um, one of the things that you mention, I think, in your book is that you never quite get over it, that it's not something once you've reacted to or struggled with it, as let's say as a child, it's something that's always with you. It's a, it, it, never, it never goes away. Is that true? Right. I think after a trauma, about 100% of people will have some kind of PTSD-like symptoms, but for 70% of people, those go away in the first month. And it's this about 30% who are vulnerable. And if they have symptoms after one month, research is pretty clear, it's going to stick around and it's not just going to go away like a bruise. And that's an important part for parents to know is if their children are still having symptoms after a month, it's it's no longer time to keep waiting. It's time to seek professional help. 
Well, as I understand it, you you said or you do say uh, you wrote the book because very often PTSD, first of all, isn't recognized. Uh, For some reason, not only parents and educators, but even clinicians themselves are misdiagnosed PTSD in children. And because it is significant in terms of the percentages of children who suffer from it, we need to know about it. And so your book, I assume, is for clinicians as well as parents, teachers, educators, um, because we're kind of all in the dark about it, right? So, yeah, yeah go ahead. The, the title is, is a parent's guide, but it really is appropriate for, for so many other people like clinicians who are just are learning about this, who maybe didn't get trained as well as they could have in their training programs. It could be good for adults who were uh, exposed to violence when they were children and they're still trying to process it and figure things out. It could be good for trainees, students who are learning about the field because I've, I've tried to pack a lot of the science in there in ways that are understandable. Why isn't PTSD recognized? What is the issue? I mean, what, what, what's the difficulty in diagnosing it? I think there's three parts to it. One is the avoidance issue. You know, avoidance is actually one of the 20 symptoms of PTSD. People don't want to think about their trauma and talk about it. They won't bring it up spontaneously. And often clinicians want to avoid it because they don't want to upset their clients. The second issue is that a lot of the PTSD symptoms are what we call internalized. These are thoughts and feelings that go on inside a person's brain, and you can't see them from the outside. You know, like a child with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, you can see the hyperactivity. That's externalized, and they're, they're hard to see. The PTSD symptoms are, are kind of hidden. And then I think the third reason is, as I've said, there's 20 different symptoms of PTSD. Now, you only need six of those but they have to be in a certain combination. We, we call an algorithm. And um, first 20 symptoms is just hard for people to memorize. And, and one researcher actually counted the, the number of different ways those 20 symptoms can be combined for people to get the disorder is over 600,000 different ways. So it's just complicated. Yeah, it sounds very complicated, but we want to make it simple, and obviously you do in your book, so that we can respond to it in in a, in a way that's going to help our children naturally and help our families. So let's, can we tackle some of like the 20, you mentioned 20 symptoms. What are the symptoms that we would look for? First of all, I guess we have to recognize or be aware that our child uh, was responded to some kind of traumatic situation, right? We have to know that that happened, whether maybe it didn't happen in our household. Maybe it wasn't a school shooting. Maybe it was something else that we're not even aware of. So we have to kind of start with there. Right. Sometimes children won't even tell their parents. So we've had some cases, one case described in the book of a girl who was uh, basically raped by her father and lived separately. Uh, Her parents were not married and she didn't tell her mother because the father threatened to kill her and her mother if she told anybody. That's a very common thing that sexual assault perpetrators do. So the girl ended up telling the pediatrician in a roundabout way, and then the pediatrician informed the mother. So, right, first the parents have to know that something happened, and they have to be aware of any behavioral changes in their children. So in this particular case, because I think it's always good to have these kinds of examples, what were some of the symptoms? I mean, she was told not to tell by her father or he would kill her. So how did the symptoms manifest themselves? I mean, to the mother, to the pediatrician, or to both? 
Well, she was telling her mother she didn't want to go over for sleepovers at her father's house, and the mother just thought that was, you know, a teenager not wanting to do what her parents wanted her to do. But there were other things. She was pulling her hair out, her grades were falling, and those would be the kind of symptoms that parents should have a suspicion for might be that something's happening because PTSD is just about the only psychiatric disorder that has a really sudden onset. Like one day you don't have it, the next day you do. So if parents see those kinds of behavioral changes, they should start being suspicious. That's a great example because, I mean, very often some of the chronic mental health uh, issues that children have are sort of ongoing and chronic and you recognize them and um, they're sort of, you know, uh, but this is very different because it's sudden. So, you know, right. there's something, you know, something happened to, precip- to precipitate the, these, this kind of a reaction. Um, okay. So that's one example. Any other kinds of, well, what about uh, other symptoms? We're talking about 20 different symptoms that we can look for as parents and or teachers or pediatricians or social workers. Right. And we don't want to go through all 20 symptoms. No. (laughs) If we we think of them in like three types of symptoms, we can divide the 20 into three different types. One type we call the re-experiencing. Those are things like nightmares and intrusive thoughts that a person has that barge into their mind that they don't want. And children, you may see that as them acting out or playing out. The, the trauma in, in their play. The second type we would call the avoidance and numbing types of symptoms. Uh, children may lose interest in things that they used to like to do. They may withdraw and stay away from loved ones. And then the third type we call the increased arousal, like difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, uh, exaggerated startle response. So, okay, so we've got three categories here, re-experiencing, avoidancing, and numbing, and increase, increased, yeah, increased so, arousal. Yeah. Increased arousal. Let's, because I always think it, it bodes well to sort of give examples or a couple examples like in each of those categories um, that, that are uh, in the book that you've, as a clinician that you see that maybe the most often, you know, really specific examples of that. Maybe somebody who's been um, sexually, well, you mentioned the sexually abuse, but the uh, different other uh, other kinds of trauma and, and put right. it in the context of these three groups. Well, here's a good example, and it's also a good one because it's about a young child, and people don't usually think about very young children as having PTSD and can be harder to detect. There's a story in the book about a, a young girl who was got ice cream at one of these ice cream trucks and then was crossing the street back over to her house, and she got hit by an oncoming car that she didn't see. So afterwards, one of her symptoms, this intrusive remembering symptom, is that she would take two dolls, a mom doll and a child doll, and lay them down on the sidewalk in front of her house, and then get on her bicycle, get back like 30 feet, and then run her bicycle down the sidewalk and run over the child doll. That would be a symptom of re-experiencing, of, of the, the child is thinking about this over and over and couldn't get it out of her mind, so she had to play it out that way. So what would you do in that case? This is a, a young child, as you said, and she's re-experiencing the, the, uh, the, incident, the trauma. What does the parent do at that point, like very specifically? I mean, you bring them to a, a therapist, and what kind of therapy are we talking about? I, cognitive Right. Cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, is the best studied type of 
evidence-based treatment we have for post-traumatic stress disorder. There are other types. CBT is just the, the most well-studied. So when parents go to mental health clinicians, as you, I'm sure you know, it's tough for parents to know what they're getting, you know, what kind of quality, um, how are, people are trained differently. People have different treatment philosophies. So I advocate that parents should ask some tough questions, like, have you ever seen a child like mine? Do you treat children this age group? What kind of psychotherapy will you do? And, and explain that to me. You know, therapists don't usually like being asked those kinds of questions, but kind of the message of the book is parents need to be proactive in, in this kind of thing. They have to be out there, and they have to be honest, and they have to be forceful, I guess, and, and you know, because parents have their own issues with it, because I, I, would, I would assume that in some of these cases, they don't want to relive the trauma. They just want it to go away. You know, that sort of, you know, they want things to be okay with their kids. And so they kind of tend to want to push it in the back. Not all parents, but that can be one of the issues. How long, let's say in the case of this little girl, what, how long is the treatment? How long do you have to be in, just on the average, how long do you have to, one would be in treatment for that example that you just gave? A CBT protocol is typically anywhere from you know, 12 to 15 weekly psychotherapy sessions. It doesn't have to be weekly, but that's the, the usual model. I mean, there's always a subset of people who improve after four to five sessions, but the, the basic protocol is about that, you know, three months or so. So let's take the next category. That's re-experiencing the trauma. The next one would be that avoidance or the numbing or uh, withdrawing, for instance. Give us an example of that. We had a case of a teenage girl who was uh, raped uh, in the parking lot of a a soccer game. She was a star soccer player. And um, she did tell her parents, fortunately, but afterwards she dropped out of soccer. She just you know, lost interest. And this was, you know, one of the major things that identified her. And, I mean, in this case, the parents knew why she was dropping out. But if you see something like that, your child has suddenly lost interest in an activity that they used to do and love. And it's not just because they, you know, got a little older and grew out of it. Then that's the kind of clue you can look for. It wouldn't be also, I think, with, uh, let's say, a case or a similar, like, to that, a child who's very outgoing, who's very much out there, who likes to connect with other kids, suddenly doesn't, all of a sudden doesn't. It's not their personality, and they're staying home, and they don't want to join more activities, whether it's soccer or even anything else, but they lose interest in things. Wouldn't That that would be also symptomatic, perhaps, of some kind of a trauma. Right, because one of the things that these children feel is that now they're different from anybody else, and they can't talk to this about anybody. That same girl uh, that we talked about with the soccer player, that's, she actually gave us the, the title for the book. She, she's quoted in the book as saying, you know, this happened to me. I'll never be the same, and there's nobody I can talk to. You know, you can't sit at the lunch table at school and talk to your peers about something like this. So instead, they just shove it all inside and hold it down. What about support groups? For That's a good example because she is a teenager uh, for, for teenagers, along with CBT, with uh, cognitive behavior therapy. But then also, in conjunction with that, do you re- recommend having support groups so that you can know that you aren't the only one, that there are other uh, young people out there who this has happened to as well? 
on a case-by-case basis, those can be very helpful because you know, these are very personal events and, and not everybody wants to share personally with, with other peers. So it would have to be something that, that they uh, felt would be helpful to them. Or it could be, if you, you know, reframe that a little, a support group that this person would do to help others, like this girl um, tried to grow from this experience. So she started her own group to help other girls become aware of the possibility of sexual assault and how to protect themselves. This was, this was her way of trying to grow from the experience. So that's a very healthy way of of dealing with her trauma. Uh, The last category, the increased arousal, give us an example of that. I'll I'll give you one that people may know from popular culture, and I'll I'll try to give you one from children, too. A lot of people saw the movie American Sniper uh, with Bradley Cooper. He came back from war with PTSD, and a trigger for him would be uh, hearing loud noises. And there was a scene in there of a, a car backfiring or something. And he had that exaggerated startle response. And it was kind of subtle and kind of quick. But if you see your child jumping uh, and they never used to jump and startle like that, that might be a clue that something's triggered them. And that's, that's an, an adult example. Um, but we, we see that in children uh, who have um, been involved in violence like gunshots, um, community violence. If somebody knocks on the door very loud, they'll startle and they'll run behind the couch and, and hide, and they didn't used to do that. Now, let's talk about some of, um, we've been, you've been very specific about the diagnosis and what we can do about it, uh, but there are a lot of myths, you say, that surround uh, children and trauma. Let's talk about some of those. What are some of those myths? There are, there are a couple big ones that are worth pointing out. One is about whether stress damages the brain, and another one is about mother blaming. Um, and we they can, blame mothers for everything. So, <laughs> Right, and, and yeah. it's horrible. You know, in the 1950s, psychologists and psychiatrists blamed mothers for autism, and they were wrong. You know, we know autism is a genetic problem. In the 1960s, they blamed mothers for schizophrenia and called them refrigerator mothers, and they were wrong. And now, you know, the mother-blaming model just won't die. And so now they blame mothers for PTSD. And I'm here to say mothers do not cause PTSD in their children just by being insensitive or, or being cold. They may not help their children get better as much as they could by being insensitive, but they don't cause PTSD, and that's what mothers can find themselves in therapy situations where maybe their children are improving as fast as, as others do, and therapists kind of have a knee-jerk reaction to try to start blaming mothers for why the children aren't getting better. Well, given that myth, and if people are somewhat aware of it or at least feel it, maybe that's one of the reasons or could be one of the reasons why mothers don't bring their children in for help or for therapy, afraid that it's all going to be you know, be blamed on them, you know, the whole, so that, that's another issue. Um, so we do want to kind of debunk these myths. I think it's important to do that. Now, let's talk about specifically, because we, we have a, about 10 minutes less left. So let's talk about PTSD in relation to these school shootings. Um, that definitely is a trauma uh, that would fit into the, all these categories. So, 
let's talk about PTSD in that context, school shootings. I mean, all these kids who have been exposed to these school shootings, would you say that most of them or just the statistic you gave early, 30% of them are going to experience some of these uh, PTSD um, the symptoms or? Right. Well, that's a good place to, to start is just okay. think about what children were exposed to and who's at risk. If your child was, was in the school was in a life-threatening situation. They, maybe they saw the shooter. Maybe they saw someone who had been shot. Maybe they had to hide and were in fear for their life. That would be a trauma that would put them at risk. If they were never in harm's way, um, then it's unlikely that that could cause PTSD. If it, they were just watching it on TV and didn't know people at that school, that is pretty unlikely they would develop PTSD. That, um, if you're old enough to remember the, the space shuttle, shuttle uh, Challenger exploded on live TV many years ago, and there were school children all over the country watching that, they studied some of those children and found that they, they didn't develop PTSD just by watching something like that on television. So that, that could be an important fork in the road for people, parents to think about. What about the child who's in the school whose life isn't directly threatened, but who has a friend who is shot and killed? On that same day? That could certainly fall in the category of life-threatening because uh, a person they were close to was threatened and, and they, the child actually may have felt fear for their own life. So they, they could develop PTSD from that. So what, in, in terms of public policy or what schools should be doing or how we should react as parents when these horrific incidences occur, should there be some kind of a protocol so that parents are aware, teachers are aware, who, you know, the counselors are aware that PTSD is a possibility? That's something worth thinking about. It's, it gets a little tricky when we start talking about universal screening uh, of children, because um, I live through Hurricane Katrina down here in New Orleans. And a lot of groups came in afterwards into schools and started doing things in schools with students without parents' permission. And sometimes this is the first time these children were exposed to these kind of tragic uh, events around Hurricane Katrina. And so you gotta, we have to be a little careful that we're not exposing children who've never been exposed just by doing the screening. Um, but having said that, I think some kind of universal screening is a direction to move because, because it's being missed so much. PTSD is being missed so often. We need to be more proactive about screening. And many parents can be the ones who are more in charge of that. With their, hopefully that's you know, kind of why I wrote the book is to, to activate parents to be involved in the assessment part. Well, we can talk about what you've uh your 16 tips, this would kind of fit into that, wouldn't it? And talking with your children after the school shooting. So just as a parent, if they've, after this has happened, even whether it's on television or they've really been involved in it, it can't hurt to, to have a discussion about it. Parents should definitely try to have a discussion with their children. Uh, you know, children look to their parents on how to respond and how to talk about things. And if parents look like they're afraid to talk about it, the children are going to think, hmm, I wonder if I should be afraid to talk about this, you know. Um, and I've seen so many times that children have told us, told me, that they didn't tell their parents things because they were afraid of making their parents upset. 
So if parents can kind of set the tone and be up front and ask some straightforward kind of questions, that's a good strategy. All right. We have a couple minutes left. What should some of those questions be? How do you start the conversation? How do you begin the conversation with your child? There's no easy way to do it. It's just kind of uh, kind of a bite the bullet strategy and say, hey, that was horrible. What happened? Um, you know, I'm feeling upset about it. You know, I, I, I need to know what, what did you experience? What did you see? Can you tell me? And see if the child's willing to talk about it from there. And, of course, it's going to be different whether the incident happened in elementary school or middle school or high school. Uh, so you're different dealing with kids on different levels of their ability, first of all, to express themselves. And uh, the conversation would be somewhat different for an elementary school kid as for to a high school kid. Absolutely. And it's it's tempting to try to to make your child feel safe and to, and to have them not be upset. And one of the things I'd like to tell parents is it's okay for your child to be upset. Don't tell them, just calm down. Don't tell them everything's going to be okay. I know it's tempting as a parent to try to make your child feel safe, but children, they just saw this happen, you know, for the 20th time at a school. They know everything's not okay and everything's not really that safe. And it's probably more comforting to talk about how can we talk about making it safer instead of just kind of saying, you know, in general, don't worry. Last question is, what do you do? Because this continues to happen. Um, and unfortunately, it probably it is going to continue to happen in this country. So what about the kids who are, after a while, going to be terrified to go to, or maybe even, ter- that may be too strong, terrified a word, but afraid to go to school because they're afraid it is going to happen to them. There is going to be a shooter, even though it hasn't happened yet. But just by virtue of watching television, being aware of what's happening, they are afraid. How do you prepare them for that, or can you? That's a tough one. Yeah, yeah there's, there's going to be a whole spectrum of children, some who are a little bit afraid and who you know, can still go to school and function, and some who are a lot afraid and really can't. And if they're really that afraid that they just can't go to school and function, then, then we need to you know, intervene and think about ways to make them feel safer, maybe a different kind of schooling, maybe build in some safety measures for them, almost like having a specialized individual education plan, you know, to accommodate, you know, we do that already for test taking, maybe we need to accommodate children's anxiety around those sorts of things if that becomes a problem. Well, Dr. Skaringa, Professor and Vice Chair of Research for Psychiatry at Tulane University and author of They'll Never Be the Same, A Parent's Guide to PTSD in Youth. Thanks so much for being on the show. Can you just give us a website that we can go to to access more information about you? And I know you're doing a lot, lots of other different kinds of things in this area, PTSD. So um, give us a... Yeah. Right. Well, there's definitely my, my blog on psychologytoday.com. And then there's also a personal website if you just like do an internet search on Scaringa Lab. Uh, my last name is spelled S-C-H-E-E-R-I-N-G-A, Scaringa Lab. That'll take you to a site where you can download free measures to do self-assessments of PTSD symptoms and other information about the, the disorder. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is CNN political commentator and activist Sally Cohn, the author of The Opposite of Hate, A Field Guide to Repairing Our Humanity. CNN Sally Cohn, former leading progressive voice and liberal commentator on Fox News, known for her ability to make friends across the political aisle, has gone head-to-head with her colleagues on divisive issues, engaging in heated arguments and developing unexpected friendships. But since the 2016 election and the upheaval that followed, Cohn wonders where has all the hate come from? Talking to leading experts, she investigates the evolutionary and cultural roots of hate in its most subtle and obvious forms, from implicit bias and racism to violence and full-blown genocide. She's featured in the New York Times, New York Magazine, USA Today, Time Magazine. Her TED Talks address practicing kindness online and finding compassion even for one's fiercest political enemies. Welcome to the show, Sally. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Well, I have to say, I read your book. I couldn't put it down. Um, I think it's a great book for all of us lay people. Uh, I, I never really, you know, I had similar reactions to you after the 2016 election, I have to say. So I was very curious as to what you had to say about that. But, okay, let's talk about hate. Uh, it it yeah. seems to be, you know, here it is, and not just in the United States. It's a whole global thing that's happening around the world. And it doesn't, it seems to be getting worse, not better. 
Yeah, so I, will, I should start by being clear that when I talk about hate, I'm not talking about, you know, hating uh, broccoli or hating certain, you know, music or hating, uh, you know, your ex-girlfriend, your ex-boss or whatever. I, that's, you know, that's interpersonal hate. I don't, I don't like it. I'm sure it's not good for you. But, uh, you know, it doesn't affect society as a whole. Um, what I worry about is our history in the past and our habits in the present of demeaning and dehumanizing people, especially certain groups of people, because of their identity or their ideas. And that kind of hate uh, has, uh, is, is, is baked into our policies, our institutions, our systems. It replicates itself in inequality and injustice. And it also infects our personal interactions and the way we live our lives and who we live our lives with uh, that, that just keep that dynamics of hate going. And so my goal was to unearth why we hate, how we hate, and how we can all help stop it. Well, one of the things you point out in the book, Gordon Alport, a psychologist, I guess he was at Harvard, not sure, but you hate is sort of, it goes from genocide to just hating somebody who's not in the in-group with you. They're in the out-group with you. So, and then it, it sort of covers the gamut from those two extremes. Um, and one of the things which I liked is that the fact that you gave examples of people who we, who you, of a terrorist, a number one, of a white supremacist, uh, and someone who was a victim of the Rwandan genocide and how they overcame their hate. Maybe we should start with that, those examples of how, because right now it seems as if um, when we, encounter somebody who you think is or who is spewing hate in a systemic way that affects our culture, our institutions, uh, we kind of respond in kind with hate. And uh, these examples are people who didn't do that or haven't done that. So can we talk about those three examples? Yeah, I mean, let's, um, let's pick just one to focus on. So uh, uh, indeed I went and spent time with former neo-Nazis and former terrorists and people who'd participated in genocides who had managed to leave lives of hate. It's extraordinary. At the extreme end of the spectrum, leave hate behind. And I, because I think simply thought, well, there must be something that we can learn from them. And if they can do it, there's hope for the rest of us. And so for instance, in, uh, Israel-Palestine uh, in the West Bank, uh, I met a man named Bassam Araman, who, when he was a teenager, uh, had been accused of terrorism. Terrorism is a word we could get into whether it was or was not but terrorism, but it was the word he uses, and it's the word that the Israeli government used in convicting him of terrorism for an attack that he helped plan but was not present for, uh, that some of his friends uh, through a grenade in an Israeli military convoy. They missed target. They, didn't, they were kids. They didn't know what they were doing. No one got hurt. No property got hurt. They still all got <clears throat> thrown in prison for terrorism. And while Bassam was in prison, I mean, it, you have to bear in mind, you know, and I, I share in the book that the, his upbringing uh, in the West Bank 
the restrictions, the, uh, you know, sort of daily injustices he was subject to, and the fact that in his, the only Israelis he knew were soldiers, the only Jews he knew were soldiers. In his mind, they were the same thing, and they were all this violent occupying force. And so in prison, when he went to go, they showed a film about the Holocaust, Bassan actually went because by his, by his account, he wanted to see, um, he wanted to see Jews being killed. He thought he would enjoy it. But when he actually saw the film, when he saw what had happened in the Holocaust, he, it, it broke, he burst out crying and it broke his heart open. And uh, fast forward, he ended up after prison getting a master's degree in Holocaust studies and going on to found an organization of former Palestinian combatants and former Israeli combatants and soldiers working together for common understanding, common ground, and peace. Which seems, when you read it, are you under, I mean, I don't know, have you continued to follow him uh, or, or have contact with him? I mean, it seems, it, it seems almost impossible, but uh, that's such a good example because it, it's, I mean, when we're using the word terrorists and Palestinians and Israelis, and it's sort of like, it seems like an impossible task to, to resolve those animosity isn't the word, but the conflict. And yet this one person is one step, I guess, in the process of being able to do that. Is that related? But That's he's what you not, talk- and the other thing is he's not the only one. Yeah. That, there are, that there are many, but we don't hear those stories because we hear from Netanyahu, we hear from uh, Hamas, we hear these sort of extreme voices and the most hateful voices and the, uh, you know, those promising pieces of peace and, and resolution and forgiveness and justice and common ground get buried by all of the rhetoric of hate. So what you're saying is you have to have the talk. Is that, I mean, that seems to come, that seems sort of the overriding message in the book. You have to sit down and be able to, to, to have, to, to connect, have a, con- is that it? You have to be able to, to, to uh, have these connections, these talks to be able to talk to one another and we don't do that. We just react if someone yes. does something. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's. Look, in the book, I talk about how we also obviously need to address hate at its institutional policy systemic levels, right? There are, you know, when you look at a place like Israel Palestine, there are uh, active policies and practices uh, that foment hate in one direction or the other. Uh, and and that's true in the United States is true in, it's true it's true everywhere. So you know when we have people being treated differently in the workplace by the military by police state in terms of policing, uh, you know in in terms of wages in terms of housing opportunities those those are the injustices of hate baked into policy uh, which then just continues hate. So we need to address that. And you're exactly right. Uh, you know, my, my book's called The Opposite of Hate. The opposite of hate isn't love. You don't have to love someone to stop hating them. You don't even like them. You have to understand is the ways in which we are fundamentally as human beings connected. Connection is the opposite of hate. That we have, in the, our, our differences and our disagreements are incredibly important. They're part of what make us, us humans. And alongside those differences and disagreements, we have a lot in common, a lot that connects us, including a shared humanity and, and dignity and right to justice. And understanding that 
experiencing that is essential to breaking down hate. It's what Brene Brown points out when she says it's hard to hate people up close. It's hard to hate people up close, or at least it's harder. And so the more we, and we know this from research, uh, the more we uh, interact with, live with, get to know, work with people who are different from us, our, our hate uh, starts to break down. Yeah, well, our hate diminishes. It's sort of like having the neighbor who is Jewish or who is black or who is gay. Uh, uh, they're okay, <laughs> you know, because they're my neighbor and I like them. But when you put it in the context of how I feel politically or culturally, then it's not okay. I don't like that group or I hate that group. But as soon as you're up close and personal, then it, it begins to, as you say, then there's a connection and it makes people real and it doesn't, and they're not dehumanized. Um, yet we do, we need more of that. But it's interesting because you, in, the, in your TED Talk anyway, you start out, maybe I guess in the book as well, you say you're a bully or you were a bully. I don't think you still well, are a bully. Thankfully. <laughs> you started out as a bully. You started out as a bully in what was in high school with Vicky. Talk to us about Vicky because that's a good example um, because you were kind of sucked into the, the, the bullying when you were young. You know, uh, when I was uh, in elementary school, I, uh, you know, treated other kids like crap. I mean, there's, there's no other, you know, I... I, um, I picked on them, teased them, made jokes at their expense. I was, I was a bully. Maybe not the world's worst bully, but I was a bully. And there was indeed one girl whose story I share in the book who I, I and, and a lot of kids and actually, honestly, a lot of teachers um, really uh, made, a, made a practice of tormenting. And, and again, you know, a lot of people will, will, would sort of read the draft or the story before my before I published my book, before um, uh, I did my TED talk and said, wait a second, bullying isn't, bullying isn't uh, hate. You didn't hate her. And, and they may be right to the extent that it wasn't overt hate in the sense that we think of overt bigotry or explicit hatred. Um, but the fact is I was a, you know, well-off, relatively rich kid picking on a poor kid. Uh, she had uh, some struggles with uh, disability or learning issues. She uh, would end up later in life being gay. And we know that the kids who are most likely to be bullied, who are including poor kids, kids with disabilities, and kids who are gender nonconforming or end up being gay, they're the same groups of people that we discriminate against in our public policies. Uh, and in our culture more broadly. So, again, it's not to say that obviously bullying is the same thing as those more extreme forms of hate, but they, that root, that root, the core root of demeaning and dehumanizing certain yep. groups of people because of their well, identity. I think you, in the, in the book ideas, you talk about, same. don't you call that, well, the otherness, the otherness people, the, we... So yes, we, they're otherizing, yes. They're otherizing people, yes. Yes. And Vicky was the other. Exactly, but, but in a way that wasn't where it wasn't just, you know, otherized as, as uh, you know, sort of stand in for just herself, but rather as a, as a group, as a, as a category of otherizing. Um, and unfortunately, that's what we do. And by the way, it's what we all do. We all have groups of people 
that we treat as the other, as uh, more culpable, more rotten, more uh, deserving of being demeaned or mocked or even hated. We all do this. Um, but what's interesting about the phenomenon of hate is that we, we, we generally all think it's a problem, and yet we mostly think it's someone else's problem. We have this, they started it, finger-pointing, blame uh, diagnosis of hate. And what we rarely do is take any responsibility for our own piece of the puzzle. The, the ways in which e- each of us, all of us, in some way, shape, or form, at some scale, are engaged in otherizing, demeaning, dehumanizing people and groups of people. When I read that, in your, and you covered that in your book, and I do have to say, this is kind of a lighthearted example, but it made me think about, you know, I started thinking about, do I do that and where do I fit in? And I had an example of uh, my uh, partner, he and I were flying across the country uh, and uh, on a fairly long flight. And at the end of the flight, you know, when you get off the plane, sometimes the, the, uh, the captain and the co-captain will be standing there saying goodbye to you or just standing outside of the cockpit. So we start to walk down the aisle and uh, in front of us is this gorgeous woman. She looked like a, to me, coming from where I come from, a supermodel. I mean, she was beautiful. And I assumed that she was the flight attendant. I look on her badge. She was the captain of the... Of the uh, air of the plane, she's the one who was the uh, captain of the ship. Yeah, but that was my bias. I mean, that was. I mean, that's kind of a yeah. maybe a simplistic one. But here, I'm think, and then I'm thinking, God, she flew this plane. I mean, this is just. I'm giving. You know, I'm being really honest. Like, wow, we had a really good flight, and you know, it was one of the best flights I've had, and blah blah. And look who flew us, who did it. So that's yeah. sort of an example. Yeah. No, it's a a great example, and what I I love the example, especially is, look, we're very afraid to be wrong and to admit our own errors and biases in this day and age. Uh, I mean, there's a way in which we're sort of all being asked to do so, to be more aware of our privileges and blind spots in different forms, and again, we all have them, and at the same time, we're also... Uh, at a very at a point that is very unforgiving culturally, and so it's this. So I lo- I want to just first of all say I think that's wonderful that you can catch yourself doing that, um, and I think it's an experience a lot of us have had and a lot of us can connect with, and that is. And to pe- people could say, well, hey, it's not hate. It's not well. Look, hate comes in big forms and small forms. It comes in explicit and unconscious forms, and. What what it sounds to me like was happening there for you is you have um, what, by the way, most of us who grew up in this society have, which is a unconscious bias uh, around sexism. And you don't have it because you cho- chose to have it. Uh, I mean, and it strikes a lot of people and say, well, wait a second, women and men can have it? Yes, of course women and men can have it. You grow up in a sexist society, you're going to ingest and, and breathe in versions of sexism and they're going to take root in you just like in anyone else. And that means that you're going to have certain assumptions that when you see, uh, you know, a female pilot, it's going to be jarring because in the history of our country, that's been more rare. And, and it also butts against our stereotypes about women and gender roles. And that is, and to see that 
I mean, I go through in the book the different ways in which we can change both our policies and our institutions as well as our own communities and our own minds. But the first thing is seeing it. The first thing is not denying that we have these biases, that we have these kinds of hate in our hearts and our minds, but rather seeing them because when you see them, you acknowledge them. It's the first step to them being able to change them. Yeah. So as individuals, we have to be aware, as you say, we have to see them. We have to be able to recognize and be aware of our own biases, not necessarily hatreds, but biases like we're talking about. You grow up in a patriarchal society, which we all have and still do, and they permeate your brain. That They're in your DNA. And so you have, and that's part of recognizing that because you can't do anything about it unless you recognize it first, right? Yeah, I would, I would make one adaptation there, which is they're actually not in our DNA. So, I mean, at, at a broad level, yes, yeah, certain kinds of uh, hate and trauma uh, obviously do uh, uh, take root in DNA and reproduce themselves over generations. But at a broad stroke level, I think it's important to understand that while we as human beings are hardwired with the capacity, the capacity to hate, that we have the neural networks and the uh, amygdalas and the chemicals and the biochemistry to have this preference for our own and a fear of the other. Who we hate, who we hate is not baked into our brains, is not part of the hardware of our minds, but is the software, is what we have been taught, what's been downloaded onto us by society, politics, culture, institutions. So that, in other words, there isn't some part of our, you know, there isn't a set of neurons that make us sexist or some part of our DNA uh, that make us racist, right? That this is learned, that is learned by society, taught to us by society, which means it can be unlearned. So, Sally, so what you're saying is that, well, so then you're saying that we have to, if it's not in our DNA, okay, then we need to, we really need to educate ourselves of how our biases or our hatred have become systemic. You do talk about that in the book. Sometimes we don't recognize how it happened. Uh, Americans don't have a good sense of history to begin with, I, I don't think, just generally speaking. So if we want to understand all of this, we really do have to go back 50 years, 100 years in terms of our politics, our culture, to understand where all of our, our, our hatred or our biases, uh, our prejudices come from. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yes, I mean, understanding history, understanding uh, that is, yes, that helps. But really, it's, it's, we can do a lot by just looking at the present moment. And for me, my, one of my goals would be if we could get to the point where instead of arguing about whether sexism, misogyny, racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, whether arguing about whether these are still real dynamics in our society, because there is ample, not only historical evidence, but present day lived experience, as well as bodies of research, proof, proof. And yet we're still arguing about whether, uh, you, you know, people of color are, treated differently by and unjustly by the police. We, we should be at a point where we are not arguing about that anymore, where that is an accepted given fact. And just like we are at a point, we should be at a point where we, we have accepted the reality of unconscious bias uh, in all of its forms, and then get to a place where we can, now let's argue about what we do about it. 
Like, let's get to the point of solving it rather than still debating if it's, if it's a thing. Because it's clearly a thing. It's, it's a fact. So why are we still debating it? Because you're right. We continue to debate it. We debate it, whether it's sexism or racism. Uh, we're, we're still, as you say, debating whether it exists. How do we get, jump, you know, get away, you know, jump off from that point? And as yeah. you say, what can we do about it? Well, I think we've done a pretty lousy job. Uh, and this is where, you know, this is where in part your, your, your historical point is, is useful, is that it, we've done a very lousy job um, as a country especially of honestly reckoning with our ugly, hateful history. We tend to bury it. Uh, we tend to not want to talk about it. We tend to distance ourselves from it. Uh, when you go to places like Rwanda or Germany, places that have uh, dark histories of hate as well, they talk about it. They had truth and reconciliation commissions. They had, you know, in South Africa as well, they, they have museums and memorials that, that put it front and center. We are just ever so slowly starting to do that now in this country. Uh, for instance, the um, Truth and Justice Museum in uh, in Alabama that recently opened uh, to surface the reality of racial terror and lynching uh, in the United States that that is that stands out in part so much because our history has been to push that reality away and to literally and figuratively whitewash that history, uh, even in the way it's taught to children. And good point. We and have so one minute it, it, left. We have uh, actually. Oh, well, I just. <laughs> all right. So I think. Well, the, this leaves us the more that we can talk honestly, yeah, uh, and, and openly, the better. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say this is sort of the opener for go out and and buy your book because uh, you know uh, we just sort of touched on some of the issues that are in the book. The opposite of hate, Sally Cohn, um, and uh, maybe. Could you give us a website that we can go to and oh, sure. also listen to your TED Talk, which I listened to one of them, uh, which was excellent. Um, those two things. So we'll give our uh, listeners yes, more you information. Find yeah. both, you can find them both at sallycohnkohn.com. Oh, that's easy. Okay, great. The opposite of hate, uh, Sally Cohen. Uh, you can finish that sentence now. I just wanted to get that in before we get cut off. So. Oh, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. No, I, 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 your question was exactly right. It's, it's, we all need to, I think the point is we've, my final thought was going to be that we haven't taught people, uh, we've taught that hate is only explicit hate. And we haven't done a good job as a society, as a culture, as parents, as schools, talking about unconscious uh, or implicit hate, implicit yeah. bias. And the reality of that, what it looks like, and we need to do that better. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great talking to you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 